Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk to Ambassador John Negroponte. Only a handful of U.S. officials have interacted with Chinese leaders before the two countries established official diplomatic ties. John Negroponte was one of those people. He joined the U.S. Foreign Service at the end of the Eisenhower administration and quickly began working on Asia, first assigned to the U.S. consulate in Hong Kong in the early 1960s, then, as the war heated up in Southeast Asia, to Saigon. As a junior officer in South Vietnam, Negroponte mastered the language and the politics of the place, which gave him the opportunity to show around a young Harvard professor named Henry Kissinger. Then, as an expert on U.S. policy towards Vietnam during the height of the war in the early 1970s, John Negroponte was pulled into the White House to work with Kissinger on the secret Paris peace talks, where the U.S. was negotiating with North Vietnam. At the conclusion of those talks, President Nixon announced... Good evening. I have asked for this radio and television time tonight for the purpose of announcing that we today have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia. The following statement is being issued at this moment in Washington and Hanoi. At 1230 Paris time today, January 23, 1973, The agreement on ending the war and restoring peace in Vietnam was initialed by Dr. Henry Kissinger on behalf of the United States and Special Advisor Lee Duc Tho on behalf of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Nixon was convinced that a critical component for peace in Vietnam was the geostrategic realignment that came from his breakthrough visit to China in February 1972. By driving a wedge between the Soviets and their one-time communist allies in China, Nixon and Kissinger thought the Soviet's position in the world would be greatly weakened. That diplomatic coup set the stage for a decade and a half of U.S.-China coordination against the Soviet Union. During this early period of warming ties between the U.S. and China, John Negroponte was so central to U.S. policy on the Vietnam War that he was asked to accompany President Nixon to Moscow for his famous summit with Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev in May 1972 to explain to the Soviets the status of U.S. involvement in Indochina. Fast forward three and a half decades, and after several ambassadorships and becoming the first director of national intelligence following the 9-11 attacks, and John Negroponte was again back at the State Department working on Asia, this time as the number two. Today, John Negroponte and I discuss his decades of interacting with Chinese officials, starting with his deployment in Hong Kong, watching the famine across the border in mainland China, to his meetings with Chinese officials on the eve of the 2008 financial crisis, which began to upend the global international order. The challenge substantively, as I recall it, was uh, getting a good grasp on what was going on inside of China. We didn't have good intel. We didn't have satellite technology that could tell us whether or not there was a famine or not, which was one of the issues of debate at the time. So we had the basement of the British American Tobacco Building where we uh, had a group of translators 
and we bought every Chinese news, mainland Chinese newspaper we could get our hands on, we brought in and added, had them translated and sifted and searched for relevant information. We also had a program to interview refugees who could give us uh, insights into conditions there. But uh, these were people who had left China, correct, for political and/or economic financial. Well, reasons. yeah, I would say most. If you look at uh, many, if not most, were re uh, economic refugees. And if you look at the history of housing in Hong Kong, at first these people were all in shanty houses along the sides of the hills and everything. It was a real eyesore back in the fifties, and then the Hong Kong government started a pretty systematic program to give refugees proper housing and some of that housing is still there you can see it um, but it took a long time to put a dent into the housing needs uh, of the refugee population and of course inherently Hong Kong has always had re refugees it was just a question of how many at any you know, what the flow was at any particular time so you'd mentioned the famine that was going on then and how difficult it was to get a window on what was happening in China. I mean, the communists had just taken power a decade and change beforehand. Correct. What was the feeling as to what was going on? I mean, clearly there was uh, some social turmoil that was happening during the Great Leap Forward in this time. But did right. you have a sense at that moment that there was widespread famine or really difficulties within um, society? Yes. Now, bear in mind, at that time, I was neither, you know, I wasn't somebody who was whose job it was to follow what was going on in China. I was also a junior officer. I arrived in Hong Kong in January of 1961. I was not even 22 years old yet. Uh, so, you know, my experience was fairly limited. But um, I guess I I absorbed things pretty quickly, and uh, I, I, I could hear the debate. I attended a couple of meetings in the Consul General staff meetings when they were debating whether or not there was a famine. But yeah, I mean, the feeling was that this is an impoverished country struggling for its uh, existence. I think there was uh, m what I was more uh, aware of at the time. I was sure there was a famine going on. That I don't think I had any doubt in my mind. What I was equally or more aware of was the uh, discussions that we were having at the Consulate General about the Sino-Soviet split. And I can remember Hayward Isham, who was one of our political officers there. He's since passed away, unfortunately. But Hayward wrote a seminal cable in about sometime in 1962 based on some article he'd, he'd read in a newspaper or an editorial which his conclusion from analyzing the article was this represents an irrevocable split between China and the Soviet Union. And a day or so later, uh, Herb Levin and I met with one of the guys from the CIA station there, and he said, who's this guy, Aisham? You know, he's got rocks in his head. I mean, how can he, how can he think there's a Sino-Soviet split? Well, it's fascinating because in retrospect, and uh, in, in my career, and especially when I took over the Directorate of National Intelligence, I kind of cite the decade of the 1960s as one of uh, where LBJ and Dean Rusk uh, perpetrated an enormous intelligence failure by insufficiently appreciating the significance of the Sino-Soviet split. They were so 
fixated with the idea of a monolithic communist movement that they, they could not uh, fit these new emerging facts into their worldview. And it turned out to be, it became a very important problem. So, you know, when people say, you know, an intelligence failure because you failed to pick up this little bit of information or that, here was a real strategic intelligence failure, in my view, where we just didn't factor in sufficiently what we actually knew about the Sino-Soviet split into our policymaking, and it took the advent of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger to do that. But that's a decade later. <laughs> so that, yeah, or seven or eight years later. Yeah. The mindset was so fixed at that moment that the Soviet and communist menace was one block, that the idea that Correct. there were different fissures within that block just didn't fit into no way. No way. U.S. policymakers or Well, or and Rusk, leaders. you know, was Rusk, of all of them in that team there, was very ideological or much more ideological than the others, more so than McNamara or Johnson himself. So that was Hong Kong, and a uh, fascinating time to be there, and has changed a fair amount since, since then. I think one of your farewell tours as Deputy Secretary of State mm -hmm. took you to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. It must have been about 2000, 2008, maybe. It was right during the beginning. It's when Bear Stearns went out, or, or, or Lehman Brothers, one of them, and I, I can remember standing up there at the eve of the great global financial crisis in a press conference saying, the fundamentals are solid. <laughs> so much for economic forecasting. The fundamentals for Hong Kong were still pretty good. It's still a great place to visit, and That's their economy right. seems to be doing okay. But, um, fascinating. I wanted to uh, move on to... Uh, your time working on the Vietnam War yeah. uh, and the China part of that. I recall when you were Deputy Secretary of State, uh, first I was working in policy planning and Steve Krasner, who is head of policy planning, right, right. said, oh my gosh, uh, Ambassador Negroponte, what job hasn't he had? He's just yeah. done everything in the Foreign Service. He seems to be uh, so plugged into so many aspects of policy. But what I remember the Chinese gave you, and I, then I'm gonna ask about the backstory, was they gave you this photograph of you shaking hands with Zhou Enlai. Correct. And first it showed on the Chinese side they have very long memories and their system is one that is able yeah. to kind of take these photographs and keep them hidden. And I remember what they said when they gave it to you, which was, it's a wonderful photograph. Yeah. And it's you shaking hands and you're wearing, as I recall, a, a very nice white, beautiful white suit that in 1972. I'll show it to you. I'll show you a picture afterwards. It's so there, yeah. So, but, but what they said was, you know, the optics were wrong, so we never published it because you're a, a tall person and Joe and I was not a tall person. Mm -hmm. And the optics were, you're kind of putting your hand down to shake mm -hmm. Joe and I's hand and you're both smiling. It's a very pleasant mm -hmm. photo. But they said the, the height optics were so bad that they could never release it to the public. That would show the U.S. was dominating in a much bigger country. And so we couldn't do that. But we saved this photo in our archives. And now that you're back in government, we're giving this to That's you right. to show you that we recognize that you've worked on uh, on U.S.-China relations in some way in, in your previous that career. That was from Xinhua's files, Xinhua News Agency. 
Amazing so, the, the, how good their filing system was, <laughs> considering incredible. back then they had no technology. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's uh, one thing you can say about the communists is they do keep records and yeah. they know how to yeah. access them. So I wanted that's a kind of back end way of getting into your involvement in working on the Vietnam War and the Paris peace process. Um, we can get to the Joe and I meeting specifically, but just maybe for folks who didn't follow your career. Right. You had served in Vietnam and then you went to work at the National Security Council uh, on the Vietnam War. Could you just talk a little bit about right. that well, aspect? Um, after I left Hong Kong, uh, I came back and I worked in the Bureau of African Affairs, but I had an uh, in-state, and I had an administrative job. And frankly, to put it simply, I couldn't stand it. I mean, it was just not my cup of tea. And so I went to my personnel officer and he said, well, this, you know, we can't get you into another assignment until the next assignment cycle a year from now. And I said, oh, my God. And then he calls me a few weeks later and said, how would you like to study Vietnamese? Because we're, you know, plussing up our staff out in Saigon and things are hotting up out there. So long story short, I took 44 weeks of Vietnamese language training, became a Vietnamese language officer, so to speak. I, I became fairly proficient in Vietnamese and went out to the political section in, in Saigon where I met when I was uh, a provincial reporting officer and covered a bunch of provinces in, in uh, the northern tier of the country. Uh, I met Professor Kissinger because he came out as a consultant for Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge. And I took him around to several of the provinces and went to several of the meetings. All, about a half dozen of us had the pleasure of taking Henry around to various parts of the country. So that's how we got to know each other. So Sorry, this was which year? That this is 65. I mean, I was in Saigon 64 to 68, and I met Dr. Kissinger in 65. And in 65 and 66, I took him around various parts of the country. Uh, on, on each of his trips. He was a consultant for Ambassador Lodge. Um, so then I, I exhausted myself in Saigon. I worked really hard, and I wanted to get away from Vietnam, and I got an assignment to the United, our delegation of the United Nations, but this is 68 now. And then the announcement comes about peace talks happening in Paris, and next thing I know, Richard Holbrook, who was on the delegation and Mr. Habib, uh, Phil Habib, the ranking U.S. diplomat on the delegation, asked Dick to help him pull the team together and they called me up and long story short I became the liaison officer to the North Vietnamese delegation. My assignment to the U.N. Uh, U.S. U.N. was uh, broken. <laughs> and, uh, and what did you do as the so liaison the officer? The story of my career at that time was one of constantly trying to get away from my Vietnam expertise and experience and not being able to do so. Well, I was responsible for a lot of stuff. I mean, first of all, for literally liaising with the North Vietnamese delegation. I probably met with the North Vietnamese more than just about anybody else because I had to go out back and forth, pass messages, arrange meetings, uh, like secret meetings when we were having those. Uh, uh, anything that had to do with our contact with them, I was involved in. Secondly, I was involved with keeping the records of the negotiations, both plenary and secret, and uh, worked very closely with uh, Mr. Habib, the, the senior State Department guy there, plus the two heads of the delegation, which were who were uh, Averill Harriman, Governor Averill Harriman, and Cyrus Vance, 
who at that time was, uh, I believe, a deputy secretary of defense, but who later on became, of course, secretary of state. So uh, I stayed in the Paris peace talks from their beginning, May of 68 through till the summer of 69, went off to uh, sort of like an academic year off, like a sabbatical, and lo and behold, I get called. I'm supposed to go to Geneva again for a UN-like assignment, sort of a disarmament, a committee on disarmament. Dr. And, and I even get there. I start the assignment and I do it for a few weeks and then Dr. Kissinger calls. So you actually got to Geneva. I got to settled. Geneva, spent the summer session there. September rolls around and Dr. Kissinger asked the State Department to send me over to work for him. And I start, I, I, I did. I. I was determined to refuse, but when I got into his office, uh, <laughs> kind of funny thing happened. I, I was waiting in the, you know, at the West Wing there. I was waiting outside the, the NSC office there, and Kissinger bursts out of the, uh, of, from into the hallway with Cyrus Vance, and and Kissinger said, "Oh, there's Negroponde. I'm going to hire him so he can retire, he can resign from the White House in protest. Because I, he was trying to fill slots that had come up as a result of the uh, Cambodia invasion where Tony Lake and Richard Moose and I think a total of five people had quit the NSC. And so I was, uh, <laughs> Roger Morris, I think. So uh, I was one of the ones uh, who was going to replace these people. And so I relented when that happened. My heart sank because I, uh, when Vance said, "Oh, you couldn't be getting a better guy." Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I wish you hadn't yeah. said that. <laughs> so I ended up working for two and a half years for Dr. Kissinger. That job was probably the hardest job I ever had in my life. Uh, That's saying a lot. You've got a lot of jobs. The hardest job I ever had in my diplomatic career. I was the director for Vietnam. We did not, you know, in those days, we didn't have these monster staffs that people have today. Um, I was following Vietnam generally. I was following the peace, you know, the peace process. I mean, anything to do with the civilian aspects of uh, the conflict. And, I, of course, I even had an input in the military side because, uh, you know, I knew a bit about the country. And sometimes... Henry wanted a second opinion. He'd get the military would say this or that, and he'd say, well, John, what do you think? I mean, I even wrote a sort of a basic paper for him on, you know, the pros and cons and ways of doing a ceasefire, things like that. Wow. But um, uh, so I had the whole portfolio for Vietnam with a, a staff of two other officers, <laughs> three of us, which in today's, a, I mean, that would seem ridiculous At today. a time when we were very involved in the oh, country. Oh, deeply. And we had a huge diplomatic and, and military staff there. And the NSC was basically driving the policy uh, because of Henry Kissinger's way of doing business, which was basically to play everything very close to his vest and work very secretively between himself and Mr. Nixon and not many other people, perhaps General Haig, who at the time was his deputy. So I, I did the staffing. I did some of the analysis, and then I accompanied him on, on, on all his negotiations to Paris. And because Vietnam was such a big issue in our relationships with the world, he, he often took me to other th places as well. So I went to Nixon's uh, first summit with Brezhnev, the wow. Moscow summit. We had a huge meeting on Vietnam, if you look at the history books, um, on Vietnam in Brezhnev's uh, dacha. There were just four of us on the U.S. side, Henry, 
the president, Winston Lord, and myself. Wow. Uh, it was amazing. And then he took me to China in the wake of that Moscow summit in June of 72 to brief the Chinese on what had happened in Moscow. And that's when that photo was taken Wow! that you referred to of myself, uh, be, uh, myself greeting Zhou Enlai. Wow. Hmm. In the, uh, fascinating, in the negotiations in the Paris peace talks, uh, it was a U.S.-Vietnam discussion. Where did China loom in your yeah. mind or in the Vietnamese kind of calculus as they were talking to you, and, and how did that kind of play in? Well, the, you get into a very interesting question here because there are different um, different actors in our you know foreign policy establishment who have quite different views about the ability of the Chinese and the Russians to influence things and. Uh, particularly the Russians. Uh, I, I think people thought of Russia as more influential than China uh, on the Vietnamese. The, the Communist Party affiliation was with the Moscow branch of the party. The Vietnamese were very uncomfortable with the Sino-Soviet split. They, it was like parents divorcing. They didn't like it. And they stuck with the father or with one of but, the sides? Well, they or? were more sympathetic. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I think they got more help uh, in terms of material assistance, but of course, China was the, you know, like uh, the Vietnamese would say, the lips and the teeth. I mean, <laughs> when they, and, and, and everything came across that border, other than what came by ship from the Soviet Union. But I have always thought we certainly exaggerated the Soviet ability to influence the Vietnamese. And I'm not sure the Chinese had that much influence either. I think what they did, the, the most influential thing the Chinese and perhaps the Russians did was to finally, to persuade the Vietnamese to finally just sign the agreement with the Americans, sign it. And if you read some of the secret tapes and stuff like that, uh, you'll see that Basically, uh, what Kissinger was saying, and, and, and the Chinese finally understood it and got it, if you just sign the agreement and let us get out of there and then let history take its course. That was basically Kissinger's attitude. And uh, it took a long time for the, for the Vietnamese to come around to that point. But I think that was the diplomacy that occurred from the Moscow summit forward until the signing of the Paris Peace Accords in January of 1973 was to get the Vietnamese to... To agree to, to sign a piece name. of paper so that we could start the clock running on our withdrawal. After all, all it was was a withdrawal agreement. They were, their troops were left inside the, they had 10 divisions in South Vietnam. There wasn't any con commitment at all for them to withdraw from that. It was a leopard spot ceasefire, the most unstable of possible ceasefires. <laughs> but I... You know, do the Chinese have day-to-day -day influence on the Vietnamese negotiating behavior? I doubt it. Did they have a cordial relationship with the Vietnamese leadership? I suppose so. But you know, Joe, I remember that conversation that, that took place during the, when that picture was taken, and he said, you know, we don't help them because we, we really like to. We help them because because uh, we feel we have to. Hmm. That's possible. We don't feel we have a choice. And don't forget, it was the Chinese and the Russians 
who persuaded them to agree to a divided Vietnam in 1954, particularly the Russians. So, you know, the Vietnamese, at, after that experience, they were really pretty independent-minded and didn't, didn't uh, put, place much trust in other uh, interlocutors. In fact, I think ultimately they ended up trusting us more <laughs> to today. <laughs> wow, fascinating. Um, so on your time just on the, the Philippines and uh, at the UN, uh, where did China loom in those two ambassadorships for you in the Philippines in the early 90s, ally of the United States? Uh, but I'm just kind of curious, what was the view of China from that perspective, from Manila in the early 90s, and then moving to the UN? Right. Um, I don't remember um, that China was viewed in any um, in any light uh, similar to what it what it is today. Although they did, while I was there, and I think it was in 1994, occupy Mischief Reef, and so there was a momentary blip there in the relationship and I remember going over to President Ramos's war room and Hank Hendrickson my political counselor and I were there and they, wow. they were very you know concerned about what to do about that but China didn't loom large the way it does now they hadn't yet rec attained the level of economic and political strength that they've got today so I would say it was fairly I mean, a fairly normal relationship I mean the Filipinos have always believed in universal diplomatic recognition. I mean, they've had relations with, uh, you know, Gaddafi, with, uh, <laughs> with the Russians, with the Chinese, with us, even though we're allies and stuff like that. I mean, there's no. Uh, and for the ethnic Chinese that were in the Philippines, I know in other parts of Southeast Asia, not at this moment in the 90s, but earlier in the 50s and 60s, the relationship between well, and there were some issues later on too in the '90s, weren't there? In Indonesia, uh, I mean, the Chinese community in in Indonesia has had a lot of issues over time. The Chinese community in the Philippines, I mean, this is a, a centuries-old phenomenon, and I think it's been one heck of a a lot of assimilation. And when you look at Filipinos and Marcos, all these people, I mean, there's a lot of there's obviously a lot of Chinese um, intermarriage when those people came and settled. They were, I mean, in Vietnamese, the word for Chinese is boat person. Mm -hmm. uh, these are people who arrived by boat from this faraway place, and then they. <laughs> so, I don't think there was that much discrimination or anything against the Chinese. It's not a big issue in kind no. of the way the Filipinos saw themselves. Or I don't think so. There is a Chinatown and Chinese community, but it's not It's not a... I didn't feel in the Philippines it was a big deal. Mm. So on to the United Nations in 2001 uh, to four. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. I remember I was working on the China desk at the time at, at Maine State. Mm-hmm. And I remember at one point the Chinese ambassador came in and told, it must have been Deputy Secretary Armitage, he said, you know, we're not fans of Saddam. You guys do what you need to do in, in Iraq. But in the run-up to Iraq, I just wanted to ask, China's on the Security Council, an important member of the Security Council. What was your experience in New York 
dealing with a lot of different countries in the run-up to the Iraq War. Where did China figure into that kind of constellation? I'm trying to remember whether they ever even exercised the veto once. I mean, I, uh, during, during your time as yeah, ambassador. Yeah, right. They, they, yeah, well, and, and if you look over time, I mean, they compared to us or the Russians, they've hardly exercised the veto at all. But um, Chinese are very conservative when it comes to the way they carry out their policies towards the UN. They're very careful. They're methodical. They follow very closely, of course. You can, you can always count on them to be very well informed. All those people taking notes, uh, they, they know the brief. There's no question about it. But, you know, to borrow a, phrase, a term from the Middle East, you know, when we talk about the Shia clerics, we say they are either for a sort of clerical rule or they're quietists. I think the Chinese were sort of quietists in the in the UN Security Council. They they held back. They always hold back. They don't want. They didn't want to take a lead, the lead. They didn't aspire to that. They tended to try and stay aligned with the Russians to the extent that they could. But um, I I can't recall any time when they were out in the forefront against us somehow. It was always behind somebody else's cover if there was something going on. Like even on the Iraq war and the run up to Iraq, uh, yeah, they weren't the ones who were, uh, you know, crying from the rooftops. Those were our allies. It was was the Germans and the French. (laughs) Well, and the Russians to a certain point. So, I mean, I found them quite easy to work with. I went down, I frequently went down and met with them at their delegation or in, or in the UN building. They were friendly. Um, I, I've always enjoyed my dealings with Chinese diplomats. I find them reliable, consistent, and they don't chop and change, um, and they're very pleasant to talk to. So um, they're professional, they're very professional. They really are. Serious professional. How does that compare with others? Again, your time at the UN and having served in so many different ambassadorial positions. Well, everyone positions. has their own style. I think, by and large, the countries that I've served in and with have pretty good professional diplomatic corps, uh, diplomatic uh, services, including the Russians. I mean, you can't say. I mean, Sergei Lavrov had been uh, in, in New York for about 10 or I don't know how many years before he went to be foreign minister. But. Um, he knew every resolution. He remembered all the history of all the debates. I mean, he he is sort of a genius uh, and uh, has this kind of incredible memory of everything that's happened. Um, but China, no, I, I like the word quietist. That's a <laughs> very good phrase. Yeah. Uh, could I ask, I'm just stepping back a little bit from when China joined the UN in 1971 over U.S. objections. At that time, were you at the NSC? Is that right? And you mean when when they were voted, their credentials were accepted instead of Taiwan's? That's right. Yeah, at the General Assembly. Yeah, I was in in Washington. I was at the NSC, but I, you know, I well, barely so no, paid attention. <laughs> that's what I was going to ask. I'm yeah, I barely paid attention, and uh, you know, it happened. Um, and I think uh, I think the rapprochement it would it made it easier to take the next steps towards uh, approaching China for for Dr. Kissinger and others. Um, fascinating. So then you went off to uh, 
the DNI in Iraq, Iraq and DNI, and then uh, came back to the Department of State to mm -hmm. be Deputy Secretary. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your time with the Chinese counterpart Dai Binguo uh, and this structure called the Senior Dialogue, which was supposed to talk about a lot of global issues and just kind of talk through, if you would, some impressions of talking yeah. to someone like Dai Binguo. What was it like and how did that well, yeah. conversation go? No, and th that was a wonderful responsibility. I was very pleased the Secretary gave that to me. I don't recall exactly how many of these uh, dialogue sessions I had with Dai Binguo, but we, we would meet at least twice a year. So I probably had four or five such meetings with him, both in the U.S. and in China. Um, and I found, and usually we met for a couple of days, uh, and I always found the meetings extremely interesting. The Chinese put tremendous value on dialogue. I think some people would, would, would criticize and say that they think of it as a substitute for, you know, a results-oriented diplomacy. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think with such, with a country with such a different background than ours and different perspectives in history, it's probably good that Americans and Chinese sit down together and make a, a systematic effort to understand each other better and understand each other's perspectives. So I always viewed it as uh, uh, a really useful uh, experience. Uh, our interests were most, mostly, you remember Bob, my predecessor, Robert Zellick had uh, invented this phrase, responsible stakeholder. I think, you know, our, our, our approach was basically driven by explaining to the Chinese our view that they can't be a free rider. They get a lot of benefits from the global order that um, that we have uh, helped create and preserve. Um, you know, international public goods, if you will, and that they really needed to pony up. And that was sort of the basic proposition. And uh, I think that message started to catch hold. I mean, we wanted to get them interested in peacekeeping and the United Nations. We wanted to deal with, uh, you know, piracy off the Horn of Africa. Um, the Middle East, we talked a lot about the Middle East, uh, particularly our concern about Iran and what its nuclear program and what it was doing there. I think that's probably one of the countries on which we had more substantive disagreement than just about any other. Um, so those, that, that was our agenda. As you said, you know, global issues and so forth. Environment, we, I can't recall discussing environment very much at that time. Of course, that became a big issue. Oh, foreign assistance. We, we wanted to get them to talk to us more about their approach towards foreign assistance, but uh, we had great difficulty doing that. Uh, we just didn't get very far. And we uh, another area where we didn't get as far as we would have liked was military-to-military -military talks. At that time, they would sometimes assign a relatively junior person to join our talks. Um, and, and whenever there was any, the slightest bit of tension between the two countries, the third, first thing to get canceled was always the mill-to-mill -mill discussions, which was sort of counterintuitive. And I think that's actually an element of our dialogue that has improved in recent years. I mean, the, uh, I think the Chinese military are coming out of their shell and much more willing to talk. I think they had two issues. They, they didn't really particularly want to talk to us. They were just shy, if you will, and they're not used to 
dealing uh, with internationally. And secondly, I'm not sure they like to talk to us in front of their civilian counterparts. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, various External elements. Uh, yeah, but, but that, that's changed since. Uh, and, of course, the Chinese had their steady, you know, we'd have these meetings and we'd talk about it. <laughs> they had the obligatory issues that they had to raise, which in those days had to do with Tibet and the Dalai Lama, Taiwan. We just went over and over that stuff. And I can remember sometimes we'd go through a whole day of these meetings and then I would say, well, now at dinner, we have to, after dinner, we have to, you know, have another meeting, very special sort of. Uh, small group. That's Only right, the small group. Yeah, people. right. Yes. And we'd sit down and <laughs> it would be Taiwan <laughs> and, the, and Tibet all over again. So uh, I got pretty familiar with those uh, positions that they had. Well, thanks for that uh, incredible overview of your career. I, I just I wanted to close by asking, you've spent a lot of time dealing with Chinese diplomats, diplomats from a lot of different countries. What do you think works in negotiating with China and sitting down with Chinese officials? How, how can you take those 40 plus years of dealing with a lot of different countries and kind of think about we're dealing with a stronger China than certainly 1961? But in some ways, their negotiating behavior hasn't really changed that much. Still stuck in a Marxist-Leninist way of, of thinking and seeing the world in a bureaucracy that's quite tight in. But I'd wonder what, how you see, what lessons you've learned in interacting with Chinese officials over the years. Yeah. Well, I, I think, th first of all, uh, I mean, China needs to be taken seriously, and, 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 and Chinese diplomats uh, need to be taken seriously as well, and I've always uh, tried to do that. I think you need, you know, when you're deal trying to bridge uh, between two cultures, like ours and theirs, which are really significantly different, the language, the background, the history, everything, uh, you need to make some extra effort to understand each other. So I think there's that. And, and also remember the formula of, you know, negotiate half the time and then spend half the time trying to understand a little bit about each other's cultures. I, I always felt, I admired the Chinese for that technique and think it can be very helpful, you know? When you bring them all, they come all the way over here, 10,000 miles away to visit our country. Just don't lock them in a room at 8.30 in the morning and, 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 and leave it six at night and, uh, you know, just do wall-to-wall -wall negotiating. So I think you have to make an effort to understand them. On the substance of the issues, well, things have changed tremendously. They are no, they're, they're no longer the weakened, the weak power that has just emerged from a century of humiliation. They are now the second largest and perhaps soon to be the largest economy in the world. They they have legitimate interests. They're 1.2 or 3 billion people. Uh, we have no choice but to take them seriously. They're going to be the, they will be the most important bilateral relationship we have for the foreseeable future. So I do, I'm pleased that a lot of young people in America are studying Chinese. And, I, and when I go to Beijing and the embassy there now, and you ask if you meet with the junior officers, Say, how many of you here speak Chinese? Practically everybody raises their hands. This is good. 
more and more students go for a semester, you know, in, abroad in China and stuff like that. These these are all good things, but um, they are adversaries in some respects, or they are rivals, and uh, that we have to get used to the fact that that part has changed. They're and they're more assertive. I don't think they're <laughs> they're not shrinking violets, and, and and on some issues, I think they've been. Definitely too assertive. I, I think the South China Sea. I, I, I'm, I think if anything, that that one. Thirty years ago, they would have cared more about what people think. And I think in, in now, with respect to the South China Sea, they've just said, "Devil take the hindmost," and they've just gone and asserted themselves. And frankly, I think mistakenly so. It's certainly contrary to international law, and they got this arbitral decision against them. And yet they choose to completely disregard it. And it's unfortunate. You think that ill serves them, and it also ill serves the region and the Well, and I don't really system. understand what the big deal is. I mean, uh, you know, it's the South China Sea. It's not land. It's not. It's just one part of the globe. And I don't know why they have to act as if it were a Chinese lake, which is what they're doing. <laughs> Deputy Secretary Negroponte, thanks so much for well, all thanks. your time. Uh, wonderful to, to hear all of your insights on dealing yeah. with China. And as you say, it's a problem that's not going away. It's an issue that's going to keep us engaged uh, for the years to come. Yeah, so I hope that Georgetown continues to keep engaged the way you do. Ambassador John Negroponte, speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.